Hi, and welcome to the Healthcare Improvement Podcast, brought to you by Healthcare Improvement Scotland, an organisation that enables people to experience the best quality of health and social care. I'm Leon Armstrong. And I'm Chris Jarvie. It's estimated as many as 15,000 people in Scotland have a stroke each year. The ways in which a stroke affects a person varies, depends on factors like which part of the brain was affected, how much of the area was affected and even how healthy a person was before the stroke. A fast response and personalised care following a stroke also play a key role in establishing how well and how quickly a person can recover. And with so much to consider, it's key that the best, most up-to-date care is provided to patients to guarantee the best possible outcomes. So today we're looking forward to speaking to experts about the newest edition of the National Clinical Guideline for Stroke. The Five Nation Guideline is the first of its kind. Its launch marks the 30th year for SIGN, which is the Scottish Intercollegiate Guidelines Network. To mark this special occasion and to learn more about the new Stroke Guideline, we'll be speaking to Roberta James, who is SIGN Programme Lead and also Dr Tony Byrne, the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh representative on the SIGN Council. We'll also be hearing the voices of those affected by stroke, as well as Martin James, Chair of the Guideline Development Group. But first, nearly all of us will know someone who has either experienced a stroke or been affected by it. We asked our colleague Kenny Smith to tell us about his family's experience when his aunt suffered a stroke. My aunt Elizabeth was in good health and lived a very independent lifestyle for someone of her age, walking lots and driving herself around and going to her various clubs and church groups. Although not a blood aunt, she was my late mum's best friend and she's always been in my life. We're close as she has no family of her own and her blood relatives are all in Canada. So I'd go and visit her to see her at least twice a week at her home. I visited her as usual, one Saturday morning, and we made plans to go out the following week for lunch. But unfortunately, the next day, I received a call from my sister to say that Aunt Elizabeth had had three strokes, which rendered her without speech and movement in her right arm only. Unfortunately, her recovery has been very slow as she keeps getting infections. And now some six months on, She's struggling to regain any form of independent living. She's currently being cared for in hospital and plans are underway to move her to a hospice due to her complex care needs as she's still being fed by a tube. She's received speech therapy and they've tried physio, but unfortunately the latter hasn't gone too far due to her limited movements. But she has moved into a chair for some of the day to alleviate the tedium of staying in bed 24-7. It has to be said that NHS staff who look after her have been brilliant. The What Matters to You sheet above her bed has been used an awful lot and uh, it retains that human connection to Aunt Elizabeth as a person. Uh, She's someone who's lived a rich and colourful life and travelled all over the world. In fact, my aunt was actually a nurse at the former Phillips Hill Hospital in East Kilbride, where she worked as a ward sister for a number of years. And one of the staff who's looking after her now remembers her from when she was starting out in her nursing career. Although I know my aunt's receiving the best care possible and by people who treat her as a whole person, 
it's hard not to think about the life that has been taken away from her by a stroke and to wonder what the future might look like for her. That was our own Kenny Smith recounting his family's story of living with stroke. So how might the new guideline help people like Kenny's aunt? We're joined today by Roberta James, Programme Manager at SIGN, the part of Healthcare Improvement Scotland that produces clinical guidelines for a range of conditions. Roberta, thanks for joining us. This is clearly a really important piece of work, so can you tell me a bit more about it? What are clinical guidelines and why are they important? Hello there, Leona. Uh, It's really great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be able to talk about these really important guidelines. Clinical guidelines, people maybe don't know very much about them. I'll just give you a little snapshot of what they are. So what we really want to do with a guideline is we want to get scientific knowledge into action. So we want to get results from clinical trials into the, the hands of the healthcare professionals so that they can use that knowledge to help treat their patients. We know healthcare professionals are busy. They can't keep up to date all the time with all of the developments in their field. And so that's why we come in with clinical guidelines just to help them out with that. So our clinical guidelines are based on a systematic review of the scientific literature, so of the clinical trials. And really the the main aim of a clinical guideline is to help our colleagues, health and social care professionals and patients, of course, as well, to understand the medical evidence that's out there and use that evidence to help make decisions about their own health care. So we do that by, we look for the medical and scientific evidence. We find it, we describe what the, the evidence is like. We appraise the evidence for its quality. And then we describe the reasoning behind the benefits and the harms of any particular intervention that people might be interested in. And then we put them into the guideline and make them relevant for NHS in Scotland and for patients and people with particular conditions. And the great thing about that, the most important aim is having these clinical guidelines. They really help to reduce unwarranted variation in practice and make sure that all of the patients across NHS Scotland get the best care. So no matter where they live, they have the most up-to-date care. And that in its turn improves healthcare right across Scotland. But we do that by focusing on important outcomes, very patient-centred. SIGN has a history of stroke guidelines in connection with the stroke community. Roberta, can you tell me a bit more about how we work with those affected to create these guidelines? So we're always very keen to make sure that we have the voice of people with lived experience when we're developing our guidelines. And how we go about that is at the beginning of guideline development, we're in touch with patient organisations and third sector organisations to ask for nominations for people who could sit on the guideline and whether that's a patient with lived experience or whether it's a carer or somebody else involved with people with that condition, we have them sitting on the guideline development group. And this is great because we can get their views and hear about issues right from the beginning of the process. They help us set questions that we would like to have addressed in the guideline they help us when we're making the recommendations for practice and make sure that we're really covering the issues that are important to patients and their families. When we go out to consult on our guidelines as well, we make sure we've got lay people and patients involved in that part of the process as well. And then when we develop our patient version of the guideline, we've got our patients and carers involved in that part of the process as well. So you can see the whole process is Uh, We have involvement from people with lived experience right from top to bottom. So in addition to being new, this guideline is also a first of its kind spanning five nations. 
how did this collaboration come about? So this is quite an interesting story. We at SIGN have a very long history with stroke and the stroke community. And one of the first guidelines I actually worked on when I came to SIGN was management of acute stroke. And that was published way back in 2009. We've also had always very good connections with researchers in stroke and with the National Advisory Group for Stroke in Scotland who run the stroke audit. So a lot of connection there from 20 odd years ago. So this piece of work, though, first started back in, I think, August 2019. And it was a colleague, Professor Martin Dennis, who was the then chair of the National Advisory Committee on Stroke at Scottish Government, who was in touch to say, you know, could we update those guidelines that had been published in 2009? And then we had other stroke guidelines that would need to be updated as well. So a bit of toing and froing, and Martin put us in touch with Martin James, and we were making plans to collaborate to update the stroke guidelines, and that's when COVID hit. So we put it all on pause for a little while. Uh, conversations were resumed about May 2021, and then we were able to let Martin James and his team know that we had senior management support to be part of the collaboration. And then we just worked out you know, what, what we could offer we were very keen to be part of it. We knew it was going to be a five nations approach and that's pretty unique. So everyone in the UK and Ireland would be offered the same interventions, the same treatment, the same management, no matter where they lived. And that was really exciting to be part of that. Thanks for explaining what the guideline is and how it came about. Now that we know more about the work that took place, let's look at the practical applications of the guideline, who it will help and how, especially across Scotland. Over to you, Chris. I'm delighted to welcome Professor Martin James, Consultant Stroke Physician at Royal Devon University Hospital and Chair of the Guideline Development Group. Martin, thank you for joining us today. This is definitely an incredible piece of work, especially as it spans five nations. What was it about this piece of work in particular do you think made everyone want to get involved? Well, I think there was a general consensus in the clinical community that stroke guidelines were long overdue an update. We had in, our, in the uh, rest of the UK, uh, we had uh, produced a, an edition of the guideline for 2016. So we were seven years on. And in, fo in fact, we were a good deal more than that for the Scottish guidelines. And they had been quietly retired. And of course, in that time, the research evidence base in stroke has moved on really quite significantly and substantially in areas like reperfusion and secondary prevention and rehabilitation. And so there was a strong impetus behind getting an update. This was supposed to be just a partial update of the guideline, um, but in the end it proved to be a much bigger project than we had originally anticipated. Out of 538 recommendations in the guideline, at least 300 of them have been rewritten or revised in some way or they're brand new in significant areas of clinical practice like I say so I think it, we were pushing at an open door as far as the clinical community were concerned in that uh, the evidence base had moved on to such an extent that a guideline update was long overdue. So it sounds like this has been a huge collaborative effort between the nations how will it benefit patients? Well the most obvious way of course is through feeding into changes in clinical practice. As I just mentioned, uh, uh, the evidence base for much of what we do in stroke is changed substantially in the last seven years. So if I give you just a few examples, the evidence base 
behind reperfusion treatments, so that's thrombolysis or clot-busting treatment, and uh, even more so perhaps behind thrombectomy, the uh, surgical removal of the blood clot from an artery in the brain. Both of those have changed dramatically uh, in recent years, and indeed up to a matter of weeks before we were publishing the guideline, uh, we were taking account of newly published research uh, in uh, the reperfusion area. So big changes for acute hospitals in the way they're going to manage people presenting as an emergency with acute stroke, but also some big changes in the rehabilitation of people with stroke. And we know that no matter how advanced and good we get at reperfusion, there's still going to be a lot of people with stroke who need uh, the sort of traditional multidisciplinary rehabilitation that's the characteristic hallmark of stroke recovery. And the evidence base in that area has also moved on significantly when we look at what's happened in speech therapy and in motor recovery after stroke. The recommendations in the updated guideline this year are really quite substantially changed from even just a few short years ago, mainly in relation to the, the dose and intensity of therapy. Really, uh, the evidence and consequently our recommendations are really pointing to bigger doses of rehabilitation therapy uh, and more intense treatment for patients because we know that leads to better recovery and of course in the end more people uh, recovering their independence after a stroke. My final question to you Martin, it's paramount that clinicians and other healthcare professionals use the guidance but how will we encourage them to do so? Oh, I completely agree. I tend to say uh, to the team throughout the guideline development process, once we get to publication, we've really only done about half the work because the rest of the work is about disseminating the knowledge, disseminating the guideline among clinicians. And of course, among the public, we've uh, produced a companion easy read version, a plain language summary, which is aimed at members of the public um, and their families. And that's available also on the guideline website www.strokeguideline.org and patients and their families can download that as well and of course they're often a stimulus to the improvement of services just simply through uh, their familiarity with the evidence but we are launching really uh, on a, a many months of promoting the guideline among the clinical community as well many conferences newsletters bulletins journals etc um, so that clinicians in the stroke world, of course, uh, hear about it and can refer to it. And of course, as much that we've done to make it much more accessible and searchable, there's been a big update to the uh, Stroke Guideline website um, to enable people to go very quickly and rapidly to the evidence that's going to affect their practice with the patient who's in front of them at the time. So we're encouraging people to use it on their mobile phones and so on uh, and access the recommendations in their daily practice because uh, again, clinicians may well be uh, struck by uh, the extent to which they've changed in recent years. Thank you for joining us, Martin. We can't wait to see the positive impact the guideline will have for patients across our nations. Thanks, Chris. But what about the practical application of the guideline for Scotland? Dr Tony Byrne of the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh represented our organisation and Scotland on the development group for the guideline. Chris spoke to him to find out how the guideline can make a difference for Scotland and about his own personal hopes for how it can positively impact on care for people who've suffered a stroke. 
So thank you for joining us, Tony. Uh, my first question to you is very straightforward. Can you tell me a, a bit more about the effect the stroke has on people and their families? Uh, certainly, Chris. Stroke is very common. One in four people in their lifetime will have a stroke. And that's often a big surprise to people when you say that to them. The, our cancer colleagues have managed to get that message across that cancer's common and one in two people have a cancer in a lifetime. But when you say one in four people have a stroke, that's a big surprise. Stroke affects your brain. It's a disruption in the blood supply to your brain. And your brain is you. It's the computer that runs you. It's your personality. It gets everything going that you want to do. Two main types of stroke, one where you get a blockage in a blood vessel. So imagine that's a fuel pipe getting blocked and a bit of the brain is starved of fuel. The other is a bleeding type stroke where a blood vessel bursts and as well as losing its fuel supply, that blood inside the brain is toxic itself. Stroke in Scotland is the third main cause of death in the country. It's the most common cause of acquired disability in adulthood. So it has a significant impact. Some people have devastating strokes and right from the onset, they're not going to survive. Some people have strokes that are less severe, but still very disabling. Other people might have what you would term mild strokes with little disability, but we shouldn't play those down because those are still very important to those individuals. And even a stroke with a full recovery can have a big impact psychologically on somebody. So it's a serious condition. We need to get our treatments right to give people the best chance to recover and also the treatments right to reduce the risk of it happening again. About a quarter of the people we see with stroke, it will be their second stroke or their third or fourth. So stroke recurrence is common as well. And we've got to get our treatments right to minimise that risk and do our best by our people that we're looking after. Thanks very much for that. It sounds like it's got a massive impact on people and their families. So what about the issues faced by people in Scotland, especially around about standardising good quality of care for people with stroke? Scotland probably punches above its weight in terms of worldwide stroke research. You know, the centres in Glasgow and Edinburgh are centres of excellence and have led worldwide studies looking at treatment of stroke and the complications of stroke. The physicians that look after stroke in Scotland are really all of the same mind and they want the best treatment for the people we're looking after. Many of us were involved with the Scottish Government's Progressive Stroke Pathway document uh, published in the last few years. The government came to say, what does good stroke care look like? The people involved with that, the stroke physicians, the stroke therapists, sat down in their different groups and said, this is what good care looks like and this is what we should be aiming for. That went back to the government, it was published as a government document, but it's really the stroke community that wrote that document to say this is what good looks like. These guidelines are really an extension of that. That's the evidence base behind all the things that we are saying is the best treatment. It's evidence taken from worldwide studies. It's been distilled in a way that's applicable to the five nations. And this is the first time that we've had a guideline for stroke that deals with England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Prior to that, there's been an English, Wales, Northern Ireland guideline. There's been the sign guideline in Scotland and the Republic of Ireland have had their own guideline. This brings it together for all the five nations, which are all very similar, but we do have our differences.
from what I understand, you've been involved in drafting previous stroke guidelines. So what's new in the current guideline compared mm. to the previous versions and, and how has that changed? I was involved in the first signed guideline for stroke uh, back in 2008 when it was published. I was a senior registrar when that was being written and was involved with that. There have been the Royal College of Physicians of London guideline, most recent one being 2016, so that sort of was up to date, but not entirely applicable to Scotland. This new guideline has moved on quite a bit. You know, we've got 15 years of progress. There's a huge volume of research being done in those last 15 years and really a big change in acute stroke care in that time. Back in 2008, thrombolysis, so that's a drug to break up blood clots for ischemic stroke, was in its infancy in many of the smaller hospitals. You know, the area that I worked with only just introduced that in 2007. Things have moved on so that there are hundreds of people in Scotland treated with that every year. We now have mechanical thrombectomy, which is going into that blood vessel and trying to pull the blood clot out as well. And the results from that sort of treatment is superior to thrombolysis, the clot busting treatment. So trying to get that rolled out across Scotland has been a real challenge. The first paper saying that this was a very successful treatment came out in 2014 and here we are in 2023 and there are still large areas of Scotland which do not have that service. Edinburgh, Glasgow and Dundee are providing hubs for this treatment but it's still to roll out to the whole of, of mainland Scotland, never mind our, our communities and the islands. It's not just the front end of stroke that's progress. We've got new treatments for stroke risk reduction. So new blood thinners that have come online in the last 10 years that you know, when I started off they were unusual drugs and now they're commonplace. There's a large section now in this guideline on rehabilitation and post-acute care and that's great because we know in the stroke community that our therapy teams, our physiotherapists, occupational therapists have been doing a great job but now there's a whole lot of evidence behind that to say this is what you should be doing, this is how you should be doing it. It's all about active treatment, repetition of exercises, and getting people a good type, a good amount of time in rehabilitation. Rather than just 15 minutes a day, we're looking at hours a day. Sometimes like in rehabilitation to learning a musical instrument, if you only play once a week at band practice, you're never going to be very good. But if you're at it doing a little bit every day, and for stroke rehab, if you're doing hours of activity a day, you're going to come on, you're going to make more progress than doing that little bit. It's having a rehabilitation attitude as well within your unit so that it's not just the time with the physiotherapist, getting up and walking to the toilet, that's part of your rehab. Eating your meal, that's part of your rehabilitation. Speaking to somebody and having that social interaction, that's part of your rehab as well. As well with this guideline, we go look at post-hospital care as well, out in the community, carrying on your rehabilitation there, your follow-up there. And life after stroke is really a big thing now, whereas 20 years ago we were thinking mostly about acute stroke and trying to rescue brain. We're still thinking about that, but we're now thinking of the whole pathway right up to being back at home and returning to work. It sounds like there's a lot of progress, but also a lot of challenges ahead. So finally, what are your hopes for the guideline in relation to care in Scotland? Care in Scotland has its differences because we're not one city. A few large cities, we've got smaller district general hospitals and we've got rural areas as well. And you've got to be able to apply this guideline 
its practicalities across the country. You're not going to be getting the same rehabilitation if you live in the Western Isles than if you live in Edinburgh. But COVID has possibly brought some things which will make that experience better out in the rural areas. Telemedicine is now something that's readily accepted and there's there are studies and evidence there of using telemedicine to lead stroke rehab. So you might not have the specialist in the room with you, but you can have them there to help you, but you might have them there online with you. The other thing that needs to be thought about is expanding it beyond healthcare. So you might have a leisure facility which can do exercise and an instructor there, but that instructor working under some mentorship from a physiotherapist or a rehab specialist so that they're able to give some of the, the rehab there but not having to do all of the training but you're able to deliver it to more people within the community rather than being limited by the number of staff you have. Uh, our workforce is one of the biggest limitations. There are only so many skilled practitioners there whether that's doctors, nurses or therapists and um, so having to think a little bit differently in how to get good therapy to people using all the resources in the third sector as well. These are things that we need to think about uh, for getting the message out there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Tony, and for providing the Scottish context for the guidance. Increasingly, the voice of the public is becoming a key element of any guideline that's produced. Public representatives are part of the guideline development group and a patient version of the guideline is produced with patients involved in the drafting of the words and design. Our own Stephen Ferguson talks to Marnie Williams now, who was a public representative for the stroke guideline about the role. Marnie, thank you for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit about your own experience of stroke? Yes, I had a um, stroke in 2009. Um, I was fortunate that my teenage daughter was at home with me because otherwise I would likely have been on my own. Um, she called the ambulance who, because I live in a large city, came promptly and took me to the local hospital, which is a large teaching hospital. And I received uh, thrombolysis, which in 2009 was comparatively unusual and was fortunate to make a good uh, recovery. I had about three weeks in hospital and um, the main problems I had were aphasia and um, some memory and cognitive problems. And what did you do to um, support the development of the guideline? I started thinking about guidelines shortly after joining the Intercollegiate Stroke Working Party, which was around about 2014. Um, it took two years to prepare the 2016 guidelines. And then we've gone through the cycle again with um, preparing the ones that came out uh, this spring. So um, to prepare the most recent guidelines, we put together a focus group so that we could ask members of the public what they thought about the previous set of guidelines and whether we could go for broadly the same sort of format and approach or whether it needed um, changing more radically. 
So fortunately, everybody was in agreement that um, what we produced in 2016 was broadly good in terms of style and format, and that what we should focus on was um, simply updating it in line with the main guidelines. I see. And how do you, as a patient representative, help to influence the development of the guideline? Um, well, there were um, a series. Well, we, we started with the questions for the guidelines because the, um, the main professional guidelines was a, was a partial rewrite. So there were a, a series of, of questions in response to research that had happened since the 2016 ones, and then there was a search and um, through all appropriate papers and specialist topic groups by the professionals, which the members of the public were free to join, um, depending on whether they were free or whether that particular topic interested them. So in 2016, I read a lot more of the papers, but in in this recent reset, I, I focus mainly on listening to the discussion and um, giving input where there wasn't evidence and a consensus statement needed um, to be made. Um, so dropping in on all those specialist groups between us um, was very interesting for the main guidelines. And then we brought the new information from that into the discussion about how we should update the plate language summary for the members of the public. So that piece of work came after the production of the main guidelines, really. And what's that like to work on? To, to work on a patient version must feel very different. What kind of things did you have to think about in order to produce that to be an effective document? Well, we were very um, focused on who our audience was and what their needs might be and also the timing. So when we created the, the original patient version, as it was known in 2016, we talked about did we need two sets of documents, one aimed at people with aphasia and one aimed at people who didn't have communication difficulties, for example. But we felt that as much the information that's in the guideline needs to be accessed by people as soon as possible. And most stroke patients will have some sort of cognitive or language impairments right at the beginning, that it was important to make the document as easily comprehensible as possible and focus on getting it into people's hands as soon as possible in their patient journey. So again, in, so we decided in 2016, we would have just one version that was for everybody. And we would keep um, a very strong 
uh, structure to it. So visually it echoed other information about the snap stroke audit and and other documents that came out for the public from the same stable. And we, in terms of reading from the first page to the last, it echoed the patient journey in terms of organisation. Right, I, I understand. It's a huge piece of work and it's clearly taken up a lot of your time and, and quite a lot of knowledge from you. You must have some hopes for the guideline now. What are those hopes? Well, our main hope is that um, it it gets into uh, more hands sooner than the last version. So I suggested this time round that we should uh, try and make use of a QR code for access to the document and a printable poster for uh, hospitals or other centres providing stroke care so that this could be positioned in places like waiting rooms or by lifts or in emergency departments, in GP surgeries, you know, possibly in public libraries, town halls, etc. because it needs wide distribution. So uh, that's the sort of physical world, but we've also made efforts to distribute it uh, through charities who see people affected by stroke. Um, we consulted them as, as part of the process after we put the document together, which created a lot of additional work, in fact, for the person who was responsible for pulling this all to, together, um, Jennifer Bart. She, I think we all agreed it was the right thing to do, but it gave her a lot of extra work to gather together all these um, comments from uh, different um, third sector institutions in terms of how to how to reach the people for whom it was intended also how perhaps how it was expressed and we got we got lots of useful feedback but we've also been trying to spread the word online because there are many online patient support groups and so forth so we join conversation shall we say in some of these support groups and introduce the guidelines sometimes as providing answers to the sort of questions that people are asking. And although it may only be one person who's actually asked the question, they're mindful of if you're online and a lot of other people are also reading it. So I hope that gives us uh, a wide reach in both the physical and the virtual world. We're working on it still. Grand. Thank you very much indeed, Marnie. I, I think we all share your hopes uh, and ambitions for the guideline. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and telling us your story and experiences. And uh, back to you, Chris. So we've heard a lot in this episode about the potential impact of the stroke guideline for patients and family, not just for Scotland, but across the UK and Ireland. Let's return to Kenny for the last words about his hopes for this guideline. 
Stroke has a massive impact, not only on the lives of those who experience it, but all their family and friends. And that impact can last for years. I don't know what the future looks like for my aunt, but every little bit of extra knowledge about how best to help people cope and recover can go a long way in lessening that impact. I like to think that the guideline is something that everyone involved in stroke care will refer to as the best and most up-to-date advice to help make a real impact for people. Surely, following the best advice is most likely to result in the best care and the best outcomes. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to this month's episode covering the introduction of the National Stroke Guideline. Join us next month where we'll be looking at another aspect of quality improvement in health and care in Scotland. If you would like to keep up to date with our work in the meantime, or just to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and on Facebook. We look forward to welcoming you back in a month's time. Goodbye.